You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated. Good to see all of y'all here today. Let, let me just start by saying I am so grateful for a church that loves God's word. Your hunger and your love and your righteous demanding that we are in God's word and your attention to the word really is special and it's unique. And Highland, I just think it's worthy of recognition today. Say thank you for, for loving the word of God. I would be nothing without his word. I'd have nothing to say to you on Sunday morning without his word. And as a church, we'd really be lost without it. This summer, we've been looking at the mountain peaks of, of scripture and we've been seeing on, on every page the story of God's redemption of, of his people. It's been so good to see his story of how he desires to, to redeem us, to save us. And you might be asking today, what, what is the Bible all about? Well, here it is. The Bible reveals who God is, who we are, and how God pursues us to save us and keep us. That, that is the purpose of the Bible. It unfolds for us who God is, what he's about, certainly who we are also in light of God, and how God desires to pursue all of us to the end of saving us. And once he has saved us, he commits to, to keep us. You see, that's the rhythm of the scripture. That's the story of scripture. That's the arc of redemption. That's a picture of, of the gospel. God pursues, he saves, he keeps to every generation. He, he does this. If you want to see it more specifically, it's that God pursues, he saves us through Christ, and he keeps us by his Holy Spirit. So Christian, you are triply secure. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So what then is, is, is the main character? Who then is the main character of the Bible? The main character of the Bible is, is God, not us. I hope you're okay with that. We, we are not the main character of, of the Bible. There are some who think that the Bible is just kind of a practical handbook that we should kind of reference every now and then for life's situations. And they come to the Bible like that. People like that come to the Bible and think, what application does this have for me? What does this mean for me? What relevance is this for my circumstances and, and my stuff today? The reality is the Bible is much more about God than it is about us. And it's easy in a me-centered culture to open up the Bible and just walk right past God and ask yourself, what, what does it say about me? What does it say about me? What does it say about me in here? But the Bible is about God. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have practical applications. It certainly does, but it's in the context of who we are in light of who God is and his plan and his will, his redemption, his purposes in our lives. So you may say, well, where do I fit into scripture then? We, we in here somewhere? Sure. We're the pursued. He's the pursuer. We are the saved. He's the savior. We are the kept and he's the keeper. You see, our greatest need in life is not to be the greatest parents we can be. Our greatest need in life is not to be the most successful students this semester with, with the highest grades. Our, our, most, our greatest need in life is not to make more money or to, to find gainful employ, employment or to be a hard worker. Our greatest need in life is to respond to this pursuing God. Our greatest need in life is to know God and to walk with him by believing upon his son, Jesus. So here's the big question for today. Where's all this headed? 
Uh, what is the purpose of his pursuit? What is the purpose of his redemption? What's the purpose of his cross and of his resurrection? Where's the ark of redemption landing? Well, here is where everything, all of history is pointing. God will bring his people to his place for his purpose. This is where all of eternity is headed. His people, meaning those who have believed upon Christ, uh, his place is heaven. And we'll see today, eventually, that's a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to be actually living here on this, this earth that has been renewed. If you think when you die that you become an angel, you're given a harp, and you hang out in the clouds, you're, you're 0 for 3. All of those are incorrect. Uh, when you die or your loved one dies in Christ, they do not become an angel. You're not issued a harp. You don't just kind of hang out in the clouds somewhere. Uh, we'll see today there's a new heaven, a new earth coming for those who belong to Christ. His purpose, that's easy. His glory and our good forever. Every New Testament author mentions this, mentions the return of Christ. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament mention the return of Christ. Seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament reference the return of Christ, which means 70% of your New Testament chapters speak about this Christ who will come again, that God through Christ will bring his people to his place for his purpose. All right. It's an easy book to find. Let's go to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. As we wrap up this series today, the Ark of Redemption. Revelation chapter 21. We'll begin in verse 1. And I encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word. I hope you have it with you, or at least a device with you that you can go there. We'll, may, we'll always be in the book of Revelation today, but mainly kind of toward the end here, the last two or three chapters. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in, in verse 1. Here it is. We've mentioned this already. And this is John writing. He's had a, a vision. God has brought him into, into the heavenlies. He's allowed him to see what is to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he, meaning Christ, who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He does not say, I am making all new things. He's saying, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here's the first thing we need to see here. What's eternity like for all those who have believed upon this king? 
What is eternity going to be like for, for all here today who are in Christ? You're a daughter of God, a son of God through Christ Jesus. What is eternity going to be like for us, for all who have believed upon this king? Well, here's the first thing, inexpressible joy. Have you had some joyful days before, some joyful seasons, some, some joyful moments? They are nothing compared to the joy that this king will bring. In fact, in all of those air quotes, joyful moments that we have had, I think that we will see those joyful moments as actually being miserable, meager moments compared to the inexpressible joy of being in the presence of our great God and King. In, in verse 6 of chapter 21, if your Bible's still open, you see that little phrase there, to the thirsty I'll give them the spring of the water of life. All throughout the Old Testament and New Testament alike, anytime you see that, that phrase, springs of water of life or springs of life, it is always speaking of a satisfying, deep, abiding, unending joy. So we see here those who are in his presence, there's springs of water of life. Look what it says, it will cost us nothing. Without payment, we're not paying for joy. We're not paying for this, this total, complete happiness in the presence of God. He is giving it to us. In Psalm 16, verse 11, you may know this verse, in his presence, there is a fullness of joy. The word fullness there in, in Hebrew is the word sobah. And sobah has a great definition. It means to be fat with satisfaction. Like it's what you would say at the, at the end of the buffet and you have eaten all you can eat. You're like, man, in Hebrew, I am so bald. Like I cannot put one more bite of food within me. But here the word is used in his presence. There's a fullness, of not of food, but of joy. In other words, I can't handle God one more ounce of joy. Like I've had it up to here with joy. It's all the joy that I can take. That's heaven. Which is why C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. What is eternity like for all who believed upon the king? Secondly, God's eternal, full presence. Church, please hear this. We will see him. We will see him. Verse 3 of chapter 21, and I heard this loud voice from the throne, probably the voice of Christ, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You may not remember this, but all throughout the Ark of Redemption, we saw in the Old Testament how the presence of God was moving all the time. The presence of God was in a tent. Then the presence of God was in a tabernacle. Then the presence of God was in a temple. Then the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, specifically within the temple. But now we become the tabernacle. And God dwells in our presence. Behold the tabernacle of God, the tent of God, the holy of holies of God, the dwelling place of God is now with us. He will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be our God. He will be our God and we will be his people forever. This is the heritage that belongs to those who are in Christ Jesus who have believed upon this king. 100% God, 100% all the time. We try to look at him now, but the scripture says that, that we, we see only dimly now. In other words, you try to look at God, all you can do is squint. But now we will see him. Which means this, like Waco, the world, your home, this is not all there is. But one day we will see all that there is. 
for all who have believed upon this king. Thirdly, I love this, there's a marriage feast. If you like food and you like a party, you're gonna love heaven. Revelation 19, just go back probably one page in your Bible, look at Revelation 19, look at verse six with me. This is this marriage feast. The the, the bride and the groom, they're coming together for a celebration. Revelation chapter 19, verse six. Then I heard, this is John, John speaking, I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like a crowd, like the roar of many waters. It was so loud, it was like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out. Here's what they were crying out and singing. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her, the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then John defines for us what that fine linen is. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, the angel said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him, which is kind of a humorous worship fail because it was not God, it was an angel. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then the angel corrects him, worship God. The marriage feast. This is the celebration of the groom, Jesus, seeing and coming together with the bride, the church. And and it's not just a party, it's it's the pinnacle of our salvation. The, The bride and the groom seeing one another face to face. The bride and the groom are now together forever. I've officiated 235 ish weddings. I have it written down somewhere 235, give or take a few. You know the best part of, 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 of the wedding? It's not the kiss, by the way. In fact, for me, that's the most awkward part of, of, of a wedding. Because here's a couple, they're three hours away from their honeymoon, they're making out like 24 inches in front of me, and so I never know where to look. Like I'm kind of, in any video or picture of that beautiful kiss, like my eyes are always kind of doing this goofy looking around. Because it's really awkward. Kissing has never been a spectator sport. Like no one wants to see that. So to me, that's not like the pinnacle of, of the wedding. Some people say it's the I do. So it's such a sweet part when they say I do and I do. That's not the sweetest part to me. To me, the most beautiful part of the wedding is when that back door opens. And that door opens up, and that groom and that bride, and they make eye contact, and that bride is beautiful. She is adorned. She is radiant. I see her for half a second. I always turn and look at the groom because I love watching a trembling lip. And those lips begin to tremble in that groom, and their eyes begin to fill up with, with tears. And you know what's in their mind. That's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. That's heaven. That's the marriage feast. When the church, we, the bride, we get to make eye contact with our groom. And our groom sees us face to face. Not veiled. But face to face forever. This is the beauty of this. I want you to see this in in verse 8. I kind of skipped by it, but we should go back to 19 verse 8. It was granted her, the bride, this will be us, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. In fact, uh, some might say that this is exactly why most wedding dresses are, are white and radiant and they kind of shine and they're beautiful, they're bright, they're pure. But look what John says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, the, the, the adornments of the church are good works. 
what we have done for others in the name of Christ. And so the adornment of the church are our good deeds. And so we can prepare right now for that day, if you will, when that back door opens up and we see Christ face to face. How do we do that? We help the hungry. We help the marginalized. We serve those who who are poor and have great need. We build a wellness center to serve as a place of help and hope for our neighborhood. We wipe out $34 million of medical debt as you have done for families here in Texas. You share the gospel. You give generously. We, We need to be the people who live to give. What are we doing? We're just preparing our adornment for that day we see Christ face to face. We don't live for pleasure in Waco. We live for the pleasure of another city. But what's eternity like then for for all who have rejected the king? Because we see this mentioned as well in in this passage. What's eternity like for all who have rejected the king? First of all, irreversible justice. Not inexpressible joy, but irreversible justice. We see this back in our passage in chapter 21, verse, verse 8. Let me just read this again because this is the word of God. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion, their inheritance will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The story here is much different for those who refuse the grace of Christ, for those who refuse the forgiveness of Jesus. In fact, we see it even a little bit more clearly in the, in the previous chapter, Revelation chapter 20, with your Bible open. Go to the very end, toward the end of that chapter. Chapter 20, verse 11, Revelation. John is still seeing this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. In other words, there was no place to hide. And I saw the dead, great and small, meaning those who were recognizable and, and known. And those who were, who were just statistics upon the planet. They were standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And even the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, they gave up the dead who were in them. And and they were judged, all these people, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death that we see mentioned in chapter 21. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And verse 15 is so operative. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A fire. Hell. A very real place that exemplifies eternal judgment. It exemplifies eternal justice of God. And let me just say, none of us on that day want to stand on our own merit. And great special effects, God, just then for the thunder to happen on that. Secondly, eternal full separation from God. Now this is for all those who rejected the king. Eternal full separation from God. Remember, for those who have believed upon the king, there is this eternal joy, this eternal presence of God with him always, but not for those who rejected the king. This is permanent and final. There are no second chances after we breathe our last. So I'd beg every one of you right now, Consider, are you in Christ? Have you been saved? 
Do you belong to Jesus? Have you put your life into his life? Because it's permanent. Once this life is over, once you have breathed your last, then the Bible says there's judgment. But the great news of the gospel is that you can stand on the merits of another. Of what Christ has accomplished for us, for you, at his cross. For all who rejected the king, what is awaiting them? Thirdly and lastly, a devastating darkness. I mean, it's the opposite of a party. It's the opposite of celebration, a darkness that will last forever. Jesus mentions this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, when he says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And two more times, Jesus, just in the gospel of Matthew, will reference hell as being a place of complete darkness, utter darkness. So Christian, let's go back to what is ahead for us in God's place. Remember we said that one day God will come through Christ. He'll take us to his place. In God's place, we will be with him. I know I've read this twice already. I've got to say it a third time because I love this verse. Chapter 21, verse 3, one more time. And I heard a loud voice, the voice of Christ, crying from the throne, saying from the throne, exclaiming from the throne, behold. In other words, look at this, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is now with man. He will dwell with us. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. We will be his people. And God himself will be with us, will be with them as their God. Highland, this is the great joy of heaven, the great delight of heaven. Don't get so amped up about the mansions and the street of gold and and seeing your grandma. The, The great joy of heaven is we will be with God. Their death is replaced by life. We are weary in this country of reading about death. It has been our experience the last 17 months to see death tolls on nightly news. In heaven, in the kingdom of God, all this death that we mourn and maybe the death that you fear will be replaced by life. It's what it says in verse four, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no, no more sorrow. There's no more sickness in heaven. There's no, no more separation in heaven. Do you see here in verse four, God is personally shown here as him being the one who wipes away the tears from our eyes. I remember wondering as a teenager, like why would anybody cry in heaven? But I get it now. No more cancer, no more disease. No more pain, no more COVID, no more anxiety, no more division, no more loneliness. And there'll be no more separation from God. There, night is replaced by light. Night is replaced by the brilliance of of God. So if your Bible's still open, look at Revelation chapter 21. Jump down to verse 22. Revelation 21, 22. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, meaning Christ. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Jump down to the next chapter. Chapter 22, verse five is reiterated again. 
and night will be no more. 22.5 of Revelation, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light, and they, we will reign forever and forever. The brilliance of God's glory and Christ's presence, it will shine brighter than the sun, and we will bask in his brilliance, and we will be warmed by his splendor. Lastly, in God's place, corruption is replaced by justice. Something else we long for, something else this nation even more recently has longed for, justice. Chapter 21, look at verse 27, the very last verse of chapter 21, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Speaking of the kingdom of God, speaking of the heaven of God, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In heaven, no abuse, no racism, no addictions, no murder, nothing false in heaven, nothing harmful in heaven, no more injustice, no more pain, no more hurt. And there, listen, as I wrap this sermon up, God's glory will be enjoyed by all people in Christ. This is where we're headed for all people who are in Christ to enjoy the glory of God together. Look at chapter 22 with me. Look at verse 4. I think perhaps the most powerful verse in the New Testament. You can hold me to that. Chapter 22, verse 4. Listen to this. They will see his face. And his name will be on us. His name will be on our foreheads. I think five of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. They will see his face. This is what the ark of redemption is pointing to. This is what all the Bible is pointing to. Friends who are in Christ today, all of our lives are pointing to that day. We will see his face. We will see his glory. We will behold his glory. We will see our God. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It's chapter 7 of Revelation. And we see the enjoyment of the glory of God by all people. But it's Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It's also on the screen behind me. And you just see John. I love this. He's just looking everywhere. It's almost too much for him to take in. Verse 9, after this I looked. I looked again and behold... A great multitude that no one can even number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God's glory will be enjoyed by all people in Christ. There's this countless multitude here in chapter 7 from every nation, every people, every language, every tribe. They're singing a new song. Worthy is this king. And on that day, all dividing lines will drop and every voice will be raised to the glory of our great God and King. Revelation 22, pretty much the very end, verse 20. The second from last verse in the entire Bible, Revelation 22, 20. This is Jesus speaking. In fact, you might want to know this. It's the last time Jesus is recorded in Scripture speaking to us. He who testifies to these things says... Surely I am coming 
soon. He said it twice already. He said it back in verse seven, behold, I'm coming soon. He says it, chapter 22, verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. And here he says, surely, almost a little bit deeper, more certain, if you will, than just the word behold, surely, certainly, I am coming soon. Amen, the church says, come, Lord Jesus. Here it is, the claim of Christ is I am coming soon. The cry of the church is amen. Come, Lord Jesus, we are ready for you because you, O oh Lord, are our only hope. God, you are our joy, our only joy. God, you are our promise, our only promise. Jesus, you are our freedom, our only freedom. And the ark of redemption comes to an end of the ark. And then it goes into a straight line that will last forever as we revel in the presence of this king. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. God, we say it again to you. We are ready to go to your place. We are ready to be there for the purpose of bringing glory to you. Where there's joy, endless joy. Father, we thank you for the privilege, the responsibility to the right, the beauty of being called the daughters and sons of God. We praise you today for that the truth that you have pursued us, even when we thought we were undeserving of your salvation and we were right in that, you pursued us and then you saved us and now you're keeping us. Jesus, you're our joy, you're our confidence, our hope and our only hope. So we join the angels and join even creation around us now to declare who you are, Jesus, to us.